Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Darren Wills. He's the Managing Director, APAC, Head of Fixed Income, iShares, and Institutional Index at BlackRock. This episode looks at the implementation and the vehicles that are used to build a fixed income portfolio. Now, this topic is particularly important as we've now seen Treasury guidance on underperforming default funds. That's heightened the need to focus on the implementation of the strategic asset allocation and thereby net performance and not just headline fees. So when we look at that, we discuss the total costs of ownership and how they matter no matter whether you choose an ETF, a synthetic, an index, a mutual fund, or an underlying bond. We then break down the components as investors need to consider the various sub-sector tilts or strategic tilts that they'd like to put into place as they move away from the global aggregate, such as US investment grade, high yield, emerging markets, China, and Australia bonds. Finally, we conclude the conversation with a discussion on ETF options and how they can also assist with portfolio management over time. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, Darren. So we've had a number of episodes now as part of this fixed income series. This is the third episode. But before we get there, can you give a bit of context around what we discussed before, specifically on the modernization, the bond market and the role of fixed income? Absolutely. And and thanks for inviting me. So I think, you know, we talked previously about, you know, the evolution in portfolio construction. So moving away from that traditional portfolio construction approach, which was very product focused in nature, you know, be that stocks versus bonds, active versus passive. Um, and we talked about, you know, how both institutional and wealth managers are increasingly taking a whole portfolio approach to investing that really focused on desired outcomes um, or, you know, as we refer to it, expected returns for a given level of risk or volatility. Um, Then second on asset allocations. And then finally, really, the most efficient way to implement them, which may typically involve a combination of index factor and alpha generating vehicles, you know, driven really by a deeper understanding that the majority of historic investment returns are driven by strategic asset allocation decisions and the rebalancing of those allocations with only a residual contribution explained by individual security selection. In the first podcast, again, we talked about, you know, how various fixed income instruments, specifically fixed income ETFs performed during the course of, of, of March and April, you know, and the volatility that we saw. So again, one of the reasons why fixed income indexing and fixed income ETFs in particular are increasingly being adopted by both institutional wealth investors is that they pass that test. So they continue to deliver, you know, competitive fee-adjusted returns um, throughout that period. And also they didn't necessarily underperform um, as some market participants are expecting. So one of the common myths you'd hear is that somehow bonds are different. And whilst indexing was a viable investment strategy in equity markets, it's not so in fixed income. And one of the reasons given was that expectation that somehow fixed income index strategies would you know, systematically underperform in bear markets as they don't offer any kind of downside protection through bond selection. And the evidence showed that 
you know, index vehicles and ETFs in particular provided competitive risk and, and fee-adjusted returns. You know, and according to a recent report by Morningstar, only re- roughly one-third of active fixed-income funds um, beat their average passive peers during the fix- first six months of 2020. So evolution of portfolio construction, understanding of what are the drives of investment returns, and then increasingly index fixed-income vehicles and ETFs in particular being a viable investment style in all parts of the fixed-income markets. Let's take it to something that's really contemporary, which is the Treasury in Australia has put some new guidance around underperforming default funds. I know you're not an expert on the Australian marketplace. You know, how do you think about it from a performance metric as a fund looks to you know, meet a particular benchmark or at least outperform it in, in best case scenarios? Yeah, so I mean, it makes complete sense from my perspective that you know you should look at both fees, but also performance in terms of assessing the effectiveness of a particular investment strategy. So we know historically that there was perhaps an incentive to look purely at the optical fee that was being charged, as that was one of the factors that was being reported at an overall plan level. But perhaps that led to you know inefficiencies in the way that strategies were implemented. So when I think about the success of my investment strategy, I'm really looking at fee-adjusted performance. Fees is important, and no one's saying that fees aren't important, especially in the low-return, low-yield environment that we find ourselves in at the moment. But of course, there's no issues in paying for performance either. So again, that comes back to how you think about blending those indexing factor and alpha strategies to achieve your overall investment objective. There's certainly a place for using low-cost strategies in parts of the market where that's the most efficient way to um, to access that that investment performance. But also, that doesn't necessarily you know mean that you shouldn't be willing to pay higher fees for alpha. You know, so if there's parts of the market where you can't necessarily generate the return that you want through a passive or index vehicle, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be paying higher fees to generate those additional investment returns when necessary. So again, you know, fees, very important. It's clearly going to be a drag on returns if you're paying an excess cost for achieving what could be done through through low cost vehicles. But on the other side of that, performance and also the transaction costs in terms of implementing that strategic asset allocation is also key drivers of investment return. You mentioned there about the transaction costs. Obviously, there can be some quite large spreads between entry and exit. And it's not just your headline figure, I guess, for for funds as they think about um, the way to implement a particular approach. You know, how do, how do you get funds to actually think about the total cost of these, of whether it's an ETF or some other um, approach? You know, how do you then look at the trade-offs between the different implementation vehicles? So again, it really depends on um, what your implementation options are. So if I could just give you a couple of examples. So if I'm thinking about the implementation of a fixed income strategy through, let's say, an ETF or an index mutual fund, you know, you have a number of factors to consider. So depending on what time period you're looking at, then you're going to take into account if you're doing a TCO or a total cost of ownership analysis, the Um, cost of entering and exiting that position, and then the cost of carrying that position in terms of the the fee. Um, So if I was thinking about that in a pure index fund versus ETF perspective, the index fund will have a bid offer spread typically, an entry cost to enter that position. 
Um, and also, depending on how that particular fund is priced, is it a bid-priced fund? Is it a mid-priced fund? Then you typically have an exit cost as well. And then you'd have the ongoing fee, which one might be a combination of management fee plus custody fees and, and, and other charges. On the ETF side, you still have that management fee, which you will pay over the holding period. But then you have the entry and exit costs. And one of the reasons why we've seen increasing adoption of fixed income ETFs is that as opposed to equities, you can achieve um, significant cost savings in terms of those entry and exit costs by utilizing the benefits of the ETF wrapper. And what do I mean by that? Typically, the ETF is an index mutual fund, but it trades on an exchange and it allows investors to actually transact between themselves at the wrapper level without necessarily having to go in and trade the underlying market. So typically, if you see this two-way volume happening on exchange between investors without that feeding through into buy or sell transactions on the underlying fixed income market, then there can be substantial cost savings, which can make a material difference to which wrapper you should think about choosing, depending again on your time period and your overall in investment objective. So again, I'm going to use an example in something like high yield, where you know the underlying market and the cost to enter a typical index mutual fund or active mutual fund may be say 40 to 50 basis points of bid ask spread. You know, if you transact through the ETF wrapper where there is that um, high volume going through at the wrapper level, then those transaction costs can improve materially and sometimes down to the single cent type bid offer spreads. So that's why really, you know, you need to think about this on a total cost of ownership basis and not look purely at the uh, at the sticker price in terms of the in terms of the fee. Let's let's stay on that point for a little bit longer and, and go into maybe a number of people are using different types of derivative options to to get this exposure. You know, how do you think about derivatives vis-a-vis -vis an ETF or index fund? Again, index funds and ETFs, you know, you have those entry and exit charges, you have the cost of carrying the position. You know, derivatives come into it as well, depending on um, what part of the market you're trying to access. And, and, and historically, um, a lot of investors have used credit derivatives to take a macro credit view in different parts of the fixed income market. Now, one of the interesting things is that, you know, previously, um, before the, the, the increase in size and liquidity of ETFs that we've seen, you know, using credit derivatives was one of the way that especially institutional investors would have accessed credit markets in size with a degree of liquidity and at tight bid ask spreads. But again, when you compare total cost of ownership on those, I think, um, you know, one of the impacts of, of the way that investors sometimes look at costs is that they look at a, a credit derivative and because it doesn't have a um, an ongoing fee per se, is that it looks like the, the, the cost to carry that position is lower than investing in an index mutual fund or an ETF. But that's really not the case. So, you know, if I'm comparing how I want to, to invest in, let's say, a credit position, um, then we've just talked about how I might assess the cost on the index mutual fund or ETF. If I'm thinking about a credit derivative, then I need to think about things in the same way. So what is the cost of entering and exiting that position in terms of bid ask spread? But also what's the cost of carrying that position? So when I think about the cost of carrying that position, I have to take into, thing, into account things like funding. So how am I funding that? Is it on a funded or unfunded basis? If I'm on an unfunded basis, what am I doing with the cash? You know, am I leaving it in a custodian 
account, earning a very low return of interest? Can I take that cash away and, and, and invest it in a in an income generating vehicle? Then the cost of rolling those positions, which can be significant depending on how the market is positioned at the times of those roles, and then exiting the position at the end. And again, there are large differences between you know standardized um, CDS indices where there is a lot of investor activity going backward and forward, um, standardized TRS, you know, as compared to bespoke um, derivatives, where, again, optically, the, the, the fee to carry that position may be zero, but the entry and exit costs can be significant, as can the roll costs, if you want to keep extending that exposure. One of the other things that um, to consider in terms of that cost of carrying that position as well is the lending aspect on the ETF structure in itself. So one of the things that investors perhaps don't consider is that because there is a borrow market for the ETF, so ETFs can be used to short the market. So investors borrow ETF units to facilitate settlement or to back derivatives or to actually borrow and then go short. And that creates a demand for borrow, which means that long holders of ETFs can actually generate incremental returns by lending their ETF units. And that obviously have to be offset versus the management fee that you're paying on the other side. But in a lot of scenarios, and again, depending on the, the demand for that for the borrower of those units, then that lending return can be significant and can at times offset the management fee of carrying that ETF position. Let's now drill down to the, the building blocks that make up a fixed income portfolio. At the moment, we've talked about it more on a, on a broad level. But for most investors, they start, they start off with some sort of a, a global ag or global aggregate as their benchmark, you know, that is that still, I guess, the case for most investors? And then how do you then think about the other building blocks as part of that? So I think when we talked previously, you know, we talked about the role of fixed income in a portfolio of context. And you're absolutely right. Global aggregate or the global aggregate is still a common starting point for investors, especially for investors who typically have looked to their domestic markets to access fixed income. And it really is the first starting point for a lot of investors to branch out into international fixed income markets to perhaps generate additional yield or for that international diversification. And really, you know, the, the role of ag is is still consistent with it with what it has been previously. So, you know, if we take away the requirement for institutions to hold bonds for matching liabilities or for regulatory or capital requirements, then you know, just to reiterate, what we see is those broad three uses for fixed income within a portfolio context, generating income, capital preservation, or equity diversification. The global aggregate, you know, still meets some, if, or, if not all of those criteria. So it's a flagship measure of global investment grade debt, 24 local currency markets. It includes treasuries, government-related debt, corporates, and securitized bonds. So it really offers, you know, diversified one-click access to the global bond markets at, you know, competitive fees um, of around 10 basis points in certain cases. So as part of a balanced portfolio, the global aggregate has historically provided, you know, an increased yield when compared to government bonds due to the, you know, due to that credit component, but still retaining that lower correlation to equity markets or, you know, giving you equity diversification through the interest rate component. And that continued to be true through the earlier part of this year. So, you know, whilst the riskier parts of the fixed income market, such as high yield credit, hybrids, some income funds experienced significant drawdowns through that period, the effect on the global ag was less severe 
And in fact, um, you know, the global ag has still posted year-to-date returns of around 5% when the returns of the majority of global equity markets over the same period are still negative. So still a useful part of both institutional and wealth portfolios still offers that that income and that that negative correlation to uh, or lower correlation to to equity markets, albeit reduced given where we see um, global yields in fixed income at the moment. So you mentioned there a little bit about using that as the as the benchmark and then starting to strategically tilt um, around that. Uh, let's maybe then start to go into some of the specific ways that a number of funds uh, adjust that and, and or maybe add different satellite approaches to it. And you touched on a little bit earlier around US investment grade and high yield. What are the key different vehicles that investors look at as they maybe then start to tilt towards investment grade or high yield, particularly in the US? So yeah, the, the, the ag being... Um you know, a good starting point. But then, you know, one of the things that index fixed income and fixed income ETFs um, in particular have done, have um, opened up access to be able to be A, more nimble and B, more more targeted in, in, in accessing different parts of the fixed income market. So what we see from investors, you know, given where yields are at the moment, you know, there tends to be a, a move into high yielding parts of the global fixed income markets, be that a move from government bonds into investment grade credit, a move from investment grade credit into emerging market debt or into high yield bonds to add that additional yield or income given the low market environment. So what these vehicles allow you to do is, you know, um, have a core allocation to perhaps global ag, then then to tilt into different parts of the global or domestic markets, depending on your risk return objectives, again, which is going back to what we talked about previously in terms of that overall strategic asset allocation, your willingness to take on additional risk to generate perhaps um, additional returns. So we see you know, investors looking at the global ag, deciding which parts of the market perhaps they don't necessarily want exposure to. So thinking about things like, you know, European government bonds or Japanese government bonds, bearing in mind that, you know, there's practically no yield in those markets at all, and perhaps tilting into parts of the market where they can generate that additional yield. So in government space, that might be into things like US treasuries, um, increasingly into areas of the market like Chinese government bonds, which offer additional yield pickup, you know, for for relatively high credit quality. And then in credit space, you know, tilting further into investment grade credit or actually adding out of benchmark exposures from a global ag perspective into high yield or emerging markets. So you mentioned there um, emerging markets is one way of, of doing it. The other option, obviously, given a lot of Australian investors are going to listen to this, there's the Australian bond composite as well. How do you think about those two um, options there for, for investors to tilt towards? And particularly, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts around the liquidity um, in those particular markets um, and you know, from a cost perspective, how do they compare to maybe US IG or high yield, for example? Yeah, so typical to how an international investor would, you know, have a core benchmark allocation to something like Global Ag. We see a similar thing from Australian investors in terms of core allocation to the Osborne composite. And again, you know, we've seen yields being compressed globally. The same is true in the Australian market in terms of where treasury yields are now and are at historic historic lows. And we don't expect them to rise anytime soon, soon given the global macro environment. So the Osborne composite is, you know, very heavily tilted into Australian government bonds. I mean, I think about, you know, 60% of that 
of that benchmark is is an allocation to government bonds, which don't offer a particular significant yield in the current environment. So we see investors doing similar thing to what we see from international investors. So looking at the Osborne composite um, and deciding to perhaps you know reduce their allocation to that, reduce their allocation to Australian government bonds, and perhaps take an additional allocation to um, Australian corporates or perhaps a combination of corporates plus plus high yield in some circumstances, you know, alongside um, maybe allocating to international fixed income as well. So tilting towards international high yield, um, emerging markets and Chinese government bonds. So really a similar theme to what we've seen from international investors is happening in, at the domestic level as well because of that search for yield, because of what we're seeing in terms of government bond yields being at historic lows um, and because of the concentration of things like the traditional Osborne composite into into government bonds in terms of liquidity and again I'm I'm, I'm not going to confess to being a um, an expert on the the Australian market you know there are index funds and ETFs which are covering different parts of the fixed income market in Australia we certainly offer a suite of funds which cover exposures ranging from the short end of the curve for that capital preservation be that in securitized or or, or government bills all the way through to government bonds inflation linked bonds and then different parts of the corporate credit market there is you know there should be no less liquidity on an ETF covering those markets than there is um, accessing, accessing those markets through direct bond holdings or through an index mutual fund. So that's your base case. You know, the liquidity of, a, of an ETF as a vehicle is only limited by the liquidity available on the underlying market. But then as we talked about previously, because the ETF can trade on an exchange and investors can meet on the exchange at the wrapper level, um, and transfer risk between themselves, you know, without impacting the underlying market, then there can at times be cost savings versus just trading the underlying bonds or trading a traditional um, index mutual fund or active mutual fund. In terms of the local Australian products, you know, don't get me wrong, not all ETFs are built, are built equally. Um, there tends to be less on-screen volumes and, and, and less ability to, to get really, really tight transaction costs like we see in some of the big liquid tickers out of, out of Europe or the US. Um, but that picture is steadily improving. And as we see those funds grow in size and as we see you know, increased adoption from both institutional wealth and retail investors, then we hope that you know, those kind of characteristics will start to be more prevalent in the um, in the Australian listed range, as they are in some of the global tickers that we cover as well. Can I just go back to to EM more specifically? You talked about um, the cost there and and the trade off over time. You know, if you look at the EM bond space, how how do you think about it for investors in terms of whether e- ETFs are are still feasible for long term holdings or they're more from a shorter term, uh, you know, sort of trading perspective? How how do you think about it from a cost perspective? Again, I come back to really, you know, conducting that TCO, that total cost of ownership analysis. Now, nothing's certain. And as we saw in the earlier parts this year, you know, market conditions can change, valuations can change, that strategic or tactical asset allocation decision may change at some point, and you may want to rotate into other parts of the market. Um, if I was looking at a core allocation, um, then I think that, you know, emerging market ETFs tend to come at a higher TER than you may be able to achieve using an index mutual fund vehicle. So again, if you're looking at a very core stable allocation, 
then there's nothing to say that you shouldn't invest in that part of the market through a through an index mutual fund. If you are looking at a more tactical allocation, or if you think at any point in time, you may need to adjust that allocation or to take advantage of the additional liquidity that the fixed income ETF wrapper can, can offer, then you know holding a liquidity sleeve of fixed income ETFs, especially in areas of the market like high yield or emerging market debt, where underlying bid ask spreads can be significant. So again, we talked about high yield bonds, the underlying bid ask spread being 40 to 50 basis points and emerging market debt it can be similar or even higher. So probably maybe 50 to 70 basis points. Then the cost of adjusting those exposures can be significant. So again, it really you know, depends on what's that position doing in my portfolio? Is it a core allocation? Is it a tactical allocation? Do I expect you know, over the, over the next time period to actually adjust that at some point. And then picking the vehicle that best enables you to meet those investment objectives. And what we additionally see from clients is, you know, using a combination of, of different types of vehicle as well. So perhaps having a core allocation in a low cost vehicle, such as an index mutual fund, and then retaining a liquidity sleeve of fixed income ETFs to allow them to, you know, access that additional liquidity and those lower transaction cost charges uh, that may be achieved on the ETF if they want to be nimble and, and adjust that that positioning at any point in time. Let's go to um, to China. We 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 talked a little bit about it uh, initially. We're seeing obviously China's inclusion into indexes becoming larger and larger. We're seeing more Australian investors starting to look at China and and looking at different approaches to it. What are your thoughts around um, China as as a key building block and also different vehicles that Australian investors can can look at there? So again, thinking about the the global the global yield position in, in in fixed income markets. So if you just take the global fixed income markets as a whole, and you look at the portion of the global fixed income market which yields over two and a half percent, which is a pretty a pretty depressing figure. But about half of that is made up of China bonds. So given the size of the China bond market and the interest rate differential compared to other developed markets, um, China can offer a significant source of yield. So, you know, five-year China government bonds, at, you know, two and a half to three percent compared to where U.S. Treasuries, European government bonds, JGBs, or even Australian government bonds. Um, you do get a pickup even after hedging back to your, to your base currency. And also onshore China government and policy bank bonds have historically shown low correlations with other developed markets. So those benefits of diversification you know, were tested again during the volatility that we saw at the start of the year. Um, but China government bonds resume, remained resilient and demand for Chinese assets became stronger, you know, over the course of this year of, as increasingly investors have recognised the diversification role that China bonds can play in, that, in their portfolio. So from an index inclusion perspective, Bloomberg Barclays was the first index provider to include China bonds in its global flagship indices. So the the global ag, as we talked about previously, has added China sovereign and policy bank bonds over the course of the year. China bonds now account for about just over 5% of the index, and it's the fourth largest currency by weight. Um, and that will go up to um, 6% shortly, I believe. JP Morgan's followed suit. It started the inclusion of China government bonds into its flagship emerging market local currency indices. Um, that inclusion began in February 2020. And it's due to complete over a 10-month period and will be capped at 10%. And then recently, FTSE Russell announced that 
you know, Chinese government bonds are now eligible for inclusion in its world government bond index set of indices. All being well, that inclusion is expected to start um, later this year or be confirmed at the end of Q1, whether or not that will take place. But we're looking at October this year for the starting of that implementation. So inclusion in indices, markets are now far easier to access, albeit there are still, you know, specifics in terms of account opening and infrastructure and that that you need to access those markets. But what we're seeing is, you know, a range of different investment options being made available to investors to access those markets. So whether it's just, you know, having a small part of China as part of your allocation to something like global ag or to a global emerging market index. So holding those vehicles as investors have done previously will give you some um, access to the Chinese onshore market. But then we're also seeing dedicated um, funds, both on the active and index perspective, which just reference either just pure Chinese government bonds or Chinese government bonds plus policy banks. Um, we and competitors have launched vehicles over the past you know, 12 to 15 months, which reference that part of the market. And we are seeing significant growth from all kinds of investors globally in terms of accessing China onshore market through those products. So just to take, you know, our ETF as, a, as an example, you know, that's grown to almost 5 billion this year from a starting point of a few hundred million at the start of this year. So significant growth. Growth. It's one of our fastest growing products. And when we look at the types of investors who are utilizing um, that vehicle, it really is a broad spectrum. It's wealth out of, out of EMEA. It is institutional out of EMEA and multi-asset funds. But it's also um, increasingly being used across APAC. So we've seen institutional use come out of Australia and New Zealand. We've seen asset managers in Korea. We've seen wealth managers in Singapore and Hong Kong. And we've seen official institutions using those products as well. So broad range of investors, you know, has it been um, caused by index inclusion? Yes, you don't want to be underweight to that part of the market because of the yield differential it's offering. But I think investors are also realizing that even if you're not tied to a particular benchmark that has that has that that inclusion, then it, it, it can be a part of the market to give you both, you know, that yield advantage, but also that equity diversification or diversification versus other global bond markets. Can I also ask around investors, you said, are moving into the ETF style wrapper in China. In China, Is that specifically because that, that's one way they feel they've got liquidity or you know, available at, at, at need be? Um, and also there's less concern about the underlying assets. How, how do you think about investors' willingness to move into China ETFs as the first way to bought, towards then buying underlying bonds? I think we've seen investors use a combination of different vehicles. So we've seen, you know, increased interest in in China active strategies and investors moving into that. And we've seen investors using typical index mutual fund strategies. Um, The ETF, you know, one of the first ways that investors could access part of this market was through um, the ETF wrapper from from an iShares perspective. Now, you know, in the same way as the ETF wrapper can have some benefits in other parts of the market, you know, ease of trading, you know, you don't have to set up accounts. Investors can see a price, can know that price before they execute. Um, and then as well, you know, as those um, ETF products become bigger, um, as we get more investors doing different things at different times, moving in different directions, then there can be that, that additional um, layer of liquidity at the wrapper level. 
But what I would say is that the, the Chinese government bond market has opened up considerably over the past couple of years. So the underlying market is, is, is deep, it is liquid. You know, you can get many um, hundreds of millions, if not billions, done on a daily basis. So again, looking on a relative basis, you know, if I was to look across different parts of the fixed income markets and be that, you know, Australian corporate debt or, you know, high yield debt, emerging markets, sterling corporate debt, the, the, the market depth in China is, is, is pretty compelling and, you know, is, is, is certainly better than a lot of markets which traditional fixed income investors would, act, would access. Mm-hmm. All right, last question, and, and it comes back to, you know, assisting with, with portfolio management and, and trying to get uh, more exposures through time. And we've seen some ETF options popping up. Maybe can you give a bit of context around that part of the market and then how does that offer maybe some different opportunities versus the traditional ETF um, that we've typically been talking about? Absolutely. And it's a great question. And we touched on some of the drivers for an options market being available when we talked about the ETF wrapper a few minutes ago. So, you know, as that two-way volume starts trading with different investors doing different things, as investors or market makers have a requirement for borrow, and the borrow market opens up and there is a lending market in place, then you have the ability to launch option strategies um, on ETFs. And again, we've seen options being used quite heavily in terms of listed options on CDS indices. But similar to you know, the way we think about why an investor may use a CDS basket versus a, versus a cash vehicle, such as an ETF, um, very different exposures, um, different ways to access the market, you know, the, 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 the cash structure or the ETF structure, credit spread plus underlying rates risk, the CDS basket being a very diff- different composition in terms of lower number of names, different quality, different sector allocations, um, and a- actually, you know, only um, exposure to the, to the spread component and not to the interest rate component. So as that, that market has opened up in ETFs, we started to see listed options, you know, being um, increasingly used by investors. So we now have a listed options market on, um, on some of our tickers in the US. So US high yield, US investment grade, US emerging markets, even treasuries. And that started happening in USIT space as well. So we now have listed options on euro high yield, European corporate bonds. And really it's giving investors the same opportunity to, to add option strategies in the same way as they did previously on, on synthetics. So, you know, whether that's downside management, so hedging through buying puts, potentially yield enhancement strategies, you know, earning premiums through selling, maybe out of the money calls, um, playing volatility in the same way as people do with options in, in other parts of the, um, of the markets, um, ability to, to take leverage. So again, the, the ETF being a fully funded instrument, not necessarily easy to take leverage on that structure as compared to synthetics, but options give investors a way to do that in a very, in a very efficient way. And then synthetic forwards, so replication of long or short exposures using option strategies, um, as opposed to, again, taking that, that physical position. So yeah, it's one of the um, advantages of having that, that ETF wrapper trading, having that borrow market, having that increased volume going through investors, market makers being more comfortable with, you know, the ability to use the ETF to hedge hedge their books or to hedge option strategies. And we've seen that market um, develop pretty quickly and, you know, offers the same ability to 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 take a view in, in, in the same way as option strategies on CDS indices or equity indices or anything else um, has happened previously. 
All right. That's a fantastic conversation today, uh, Darren. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the invite. And, um, and yeah, it's been a really good uh, series of podcasts. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.